We're back in Titus 2 this morning. If you'd like to go ahead and turn there, we'll get there in just a few moments. First week, we introduced to you the idea of legacy living. Remember, the goal of the gospel is godliness. And as we read and listen to God's word, and as the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds and our hearts, he changes our character to help us become more like God. Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Uh, If you remember, this was written to the Cretans, and false teaching was rampant there in Crete. What Paul is actually saying to the Cretan Christians is, there is a way that you need to live to show the world around you what it actually means to be a Christian. And that's what we get here in Titus 2, which is where we've been spending our time here. Uh, Included in that, by the way, is the commissioning to all members of the church. We we made a point of that, that this is not just something for a certain group. This is not just for the deacons in the church. This is not just for somebody who views themselves as a church leader. This is for every single individual. So last week now, so that was the first week. Last week, we focused on the older men and the older women. Psalm 90.12, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Someone once said, I thought was, was, was really kind of thought-provoking, knowing your days are numbered is fertile soil for which wisdom and discernment grow and bear fruit. Knowing your days are numbered is fertile soil from which wisdom and discernment grow and bear fruit. It's that perspective. Right? When you're younger, you're just kind of looking for the next thing and hoping that it goes by quickly because there's something out there that you're going to be able to achieve. And there comes a point in time where you think, wait a minute, it's like a shifting of gears. Oh, there's going to be an end to this. And it adjusts your priorities. It adjusts your focus. And for me, what I found personally, I think we addressed this last week, it goes from more of a me-centered view to now what's the legacy that I'm going to leave? How can I help others? How can I be a blessing to others? How can I pass on the things that I've learned? So that's the kind of wisdom, that's the kind of perspective that the life of an older believer brings. And it really is the type of perspective that's needed in our, not just in our world, but in our churches as well. Older men, you are to model maturity, dignity, faith, love, perseverance. Older women, you are to model holy living and a sweet and sacred demeanor. Unlike the other segments Titus wasn't really tasked with teaching to the younger women. He was tasked with teaching the older women and the older women to then were then to teach and address the younger women. So with that in mind, I speak to the older women today. Younger women, feel free to listen into. uh, But this is for the older women so that they will teach the younger women. And by the way, just to be clear here, if older women were women, as we said last week, with grown children, then the younger women, as we'll see here, who do you think that is? Younger women who have children in their home, right? Okay, all right. So you may not have that right now, uh, but eventually, Lord willing, you will have that. And so this is important for singles as well as it is for those that are younger married. So let's pick up in verse number three of chapter two. I'm going back just a little bit because, again, this is addressed to the older women. Look there in verse number three of chapter two. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed, that they may teach. That word there literally means, as we said, to train their senses. In other words, we want you to show them 
what it means to be a godly woman who possesses true wisdom. We want you to wise them up. They are to wise them up in seven areas. So there are seven areas that we just mentioned there. And if you look, the first six are mentioned in pairs, beginning with the first one there, to love their husbands and children. This refers to their relationship with their family, their relationship with their family. The second one there, discreet and chaste. In other words, sensible and pure. Their relationship, their reputation in the world around them. And then the third one there, keepers of home, good or kind, their role in the house. And then the final phrase, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That's both a mindset and a motivation. So that's what we're going to be talking about, the headings that we'll be talking about here over the remaining minutes that we have together. So the first one there, the model for a wife's relationship in the family. This is where it says, train the young women to love their husbands and children. The phrase there that's used to love their husbands is actually one Greek word. And the next phrase there that's used to love their children is one word as well. They each start with the word for love we're familiar with. It's not actually agape, the word that we addressed last week. This is the word phileo. Phileo means to show affection or even friendship. It's actually the only time that these particular words show up in the New Testament. Think about it. You know, Paul is commanding these young women to have affection or to feel a certain way towards their, their husbands and their children. Does that sound weird? Like you just kind of assume that you love your husband if you're the wife, right? You just assume that you love the children if you're the, wife, if you're the mother. Paul is actually here commanding emotion. He's commanding affection. How can you command emotion? Those of you that are husbands, surely you've dealt with this and tried to figure this out with your wives. You expect them, by the way, to, uh, to act or behave this way, where you don't do it either, but we've, like, you're feeling down or you're feeling, stop feeling that way. Yeah, how'd that go? I'm still learning to not say dumb things like that to my wife. Like, stop feeling that way. You shouldn't feel that way. But what Paul is actually doing here, he is actually commanding emotion. He is actually commanding affection. By the way, we don't encourage this, and we don't, we don't even teach this to our children. We teach the other to our children, deep theology here. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Johnny pushing a baby carriage. Well, first comes love. You feel love towards, towards the children, towards that other person. And then, of course, you get married, and then you have children, and then you're, you have lovely feelings toward your children all the rest of their days, right? It's a smirk because, like, we, that's not how it works. That's how we portray it. That's how every Hallmark movie tells us it is. But that's not how it actually is, especially with the children part, when all three of them are crying and whining at the same time. What Paul is actually implying here is that love can be learned. In other words, a mature individual understands that their emotions can be corralled and governed by right thinking. Some familiar verses. Let's go ahead and turn to these quickly here. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice evermore. That's a command, right? Rejoice evermore. James 1.2. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. And the last one there, Samuel? Pray without ceasing. Those are all commands not just written by a man. Those are commands given by God. God is commanding you to act, to feel a certain way in all of those circumstances there. This is where our biblical actions, rejoicing, counting it all joy, praying, those are all, oh, oh, you may not feel like those things. You know this. You don't feel like doing some of those things sometimes. But if we're, if we're wanting to please God, we're wanting to obey those commands. So 
our natural fallen state, the default is to just have feelings. So thinking a certain way and then your feelings following it, that's not easy. We're not saying that's easy, by the way. And I've said this to people sometimes, you know, working with them, like, well, you should feel this way. I think sometimes we can communicate that as being like, well, you just do it. It's easy. Just do it. It's not easy. There's a training that goes on here. It's a, it's a habit that has to be built. Habits are not easy. They take hard work. And so this is something that's done through hard. It's a struggle. So what God says here, he reverses what is normal in, in our fallen state. And I would just say this. If you're someone who struggles with this, God is saying to you through Paul, Submit your mind to God. Submit your mind to Him and act according to His commands and your emotions will eventually follow. This is something, again, that will not the first time be easy or will happen right away or your natural response will be to act this way, but it is something that can be changed in you. Again, the character of God working in here. So the message here to young wives and young mothers, this is nothing more than really an abandonment of the cultural training of that day and ours that leads to self-love, to self-promotion, to putting ourselves first, self-centeredness, and it's really instead characterized by a love for others. Love your husbands and love your children there. Secondly, provide here a model and mentor them as it relates to their reputation in the world. So their reputation to the world is the next one here. So the second pair in verse number five, teach the young women to be discreet and chaste. To be discreet is that word that we referred to last, last week, that Greek word sophron, to be sensible, to have right thinking, to think biblically, and then to act right. Chase refers to being pure. When this was written, by the way, this was a word that was used primarily in that time, thinking about the context of it there in that day, to being ritually pure. But over time, it did mean as well to, to, to having moral purity as well. And so what you get with this is really a command for the woman not to attract uh, attention to their body. We would say it this way, to be modest. This is where we get the to be modest. This is not just an old, old, well, that's old fundamental thinking, you just, to be modest. I can dress whatever way I want to. No, that, that's, that's for the fitting of sound doctrine. Those are timeless. So understanding Paul's, Paul's audience here. The Cretan culture, maybe even worse than, I mean, they, they, allowed, they, they, they allowed prostitution in their time. Again, that thinking of like things are always worse in our days than they were. <laughs> they allowed prostitution. Sexual expression was prevalent and pushed in that day and age. And so for the woman there on the Isle of Crete, and really th women throughout all generations, unfortunately, getting attention is the name of the game. What Paul is saying here is if, if you want the right kind of attention, if you want to make a mark for Christ, if you want to be known for the right thing, then make sure it has to do not so much with how you look, but how you live. Third one here, the model for the wife's role in the house. Look at verse number five there. The young women are to be keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now, before I get any into this any further, go back to verse number one. Look there at verse number one. It says, but speak the things which become sound doctrine. Paul does not say here, speak the things that are fitting for the Isle of Crete and for the first century. What Paul is saying here is teach the things that fit along with sound doctrine. Doctrine that does not change from a God who does not change. So this is not just for, oh, that was for them, but now things are different. 
These are timeless truths. These are truths that are fitting now, just as they were 2,000 years ago. Let's split these into three parts. I wanna look at these at three different parts. The first one there, her priority. The phrase is to be keepers at home. It's originally in the Greek, a compound word that means house workers. The young women, and in this case, the young mothers, they're to expend their energy, her energy, in keeping a home for her husband and children. Now, as I stated, the phrase is keepers at home, not kept at home. The cultural context here. A wife in this culture, she would have gardened. She would have worked outside of the home, in the garden, in the barn, in the field with other women, their fields sometimes. She would have worked in other, a variety of other settings in the community, working with the church. By the way, no different from the Proverbs 31 woman. I think sometimes we forget what she does there in, in, that, in that passage there. She hires her own staff. She helps the poor. She barters with tradesmen. And she even negotiates real estate deals. That doesn't sound like somebody who's just trapped at home. Please understand this, what this is saying here. Her family doesn't necessarily, it's not her only focus. It's not her, we, that's what we just talked about, examples. She's interacting with other people. It's not her only focus, but it is her primary focus. And this is where this passage has been, this day and age, been kind of convoluted. Paul isn't here defining where a woman can or can't work. He's defining that the home is the number one place. Again, I was a little worried where dad was going this morning to steal all my thunder. But you just heard about some of the things which, again, the woman, just because of the way in which, where she works and how much time she spends with the children, has a huge impact. And by the way, this isn't about like holding women back. A home is where life begins for an individual. If you think about it, a young mother, she helps members of every society, the children, learn to respect authority, Virtues, relational skills, compassion, honesty, and above all, the application of biblical truth here. I mean, is it any wonder why the devil wants to say that that's a second-rate job? Is there any wonder why believing being a keeper at home is somehow negative? If he can, if he can destruct that, then he's got an end into the rest of society here. Whereas, I would say, from a Christian perspective... That's not a second-rate job. That's a, one of the most important. So don't view this as, well, we're just you know, suppressing them. No, they have one of, if not the most important job. That's the first one, her priority. Her priority is at home. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that she can't have a job somewhere else, or, but her priority is at home. And I would say when it takes away from that priority, then we're, gonna, we're starting to have some problems here. So that one there, her mentality. The word good is good-hearted or a heart that is after good. This type of woman has a desire to do whatever good she can for her husband and for her children. Her heart's desire is, is this, this is what she's asking herself, is this activity that I'm doing good for me? Is, it, is that a good habit for me and for them? What would be a good thing to do or to say or to provide for them? Her mentality is geared towards goodness is a very simple way to put that. Third area, her humility. Obedient to their own husbands. The original word here does not imply husbands. If your wives get out of line, command your wives to submit to you and get back in line. Actually, what Paul's saying is here is, wives, God is looking for you to voluntarily submit to the leadership of your husbands. This is actually, by the way, similar to what Paul says in the, to the church in Ephesians 5. 
which has been preached upon a lot here in this church if you've been around for any length of time. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And lest this just be about the young women, Paul goes on, by the way, later in Ephesians 5, verse 21, it says, Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord. That means children, submit to your parents. That means employees, submit to your employers. That means players, submit to your coaches. Whatever relationship where you have an authority and someone under, the one under, submit to your authority. It has everything to do with the kind of authority that the individual has been given by God. Side note here, by the way, this is important. This isn't about exploitation. It's actually about a responsibility that's to be carried out for the good of those under you. We carry this, there's this negative connotation of um, submit. So this one over the top has this harsh hand. The one over the top is making the decisions for the good under, of the one underneath. And underneath does not mean lower or less than. There's again this idea of if I submit, then I therefore am someone who is a lower being. No, we all stand on equal footing on the judgment day answering to God the same way. But to deny that there is a clear authority and under in, in various areas, this isn't just about husbands and wives, is to deny the authority that God has set up, i.e., this is God saying, this is how I have created the world to operate. And when it doesn't operate that way, things do not go according to the way I planned it. Authority, it's a part of how God has arranged life, all of life, for all of life. 1 Corinthians 11.3, if you want to look at this later, I'll just quote it now. I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Look at the last part there in Titus 2 of verse number 5. It says, Teaching the young women to be obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. In other words, that the world will not be able to dishonor God's word. The world's watching. So, Christian Christians, if we don't care about God's word, if we say, oh, this doesn't apply to us, if we say, I don't want to follow that, I heard what was said, but I don't want to follow that. If we say, well, I just, I just don't believe that. I just don't believe that. Or I don't agree with that. I don't agree with what, what's being said there. If we try to rearrange God's creation, the way that he has created things, when the unsaved world sees that, what do you think they're going to say? What do you think that they're going to think about God? Well, I don't have to believe that. I can pick and choose which areas I don't, and that's not for us, and, or that's not for me, or that doesn't go along with how I believe. The unsaved world, when they see that, they're going to think, if they don't care about that stuff, then why should I? That's what it means to blaspheme God's word. The charge to older women, to instruct the young women to be self-disciplined, to love, to be pure, to work, to be kind, and to submit. That's the charge to the older women, to talk to the younger women. Next week, we'll finish off talking with the young men and to bond slaves. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to see you again next week.